Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. In today's episode, I'll be joined by Professor Caroline Larrington, Professor of Medieval European Literature at the University of Oxford and official fellow and tutor at St. John's College. Professor Larrington is a Game of Thrones fan and has written a book on the series, as well as a marvelous book on Norse mythology called The Norse Myths, A Guide to the Gods and Heroes. We will, of course, provide a link to that in the description. Professor Larrington, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a great pleasure to be here, Noah. So we understand Norse mythology as being the religion of the Vikings and as the characters in Norse myth as being the gods of the Vikings. So where do we get the Norse myths from? What are the sort of basic sources for Norse mythology? Well, we've got two key sources for Norse mythology, and both of them were written down in the 13th century, both in Iceland. And of course, being written down so late, they were written by Christians. And these two sources are respectively called the Prose Edda and the Poetic Edda. Now, the Prose Edda is written by an identifiable author, a man called Snorri Sturluson. And what he was interested in doing was writing a guide to traditional Old Norse poetry. And he realized that in order to be able to understand and to compose the traditional poetry, you needed to understand the stories about the gods. And so in the first part of his treatise on poetics, he gives a quite detailed explanation of what the myths are, all contained in the particularly interesting framework. And he goes from creation to Ragnarok, to the end of the world, and indeed beyond the end of the world. So it's a fairly systematic account of most of the myths that we associate with the Vikings today. Now, the Poetic Edda was actually written down a little later. The manuscript date is 1270, and that manuscript contains 11 mythological poems. And we often add a few more poems found in some other manuscripts to that collection. And these are probably much older than the 13th century and were probably composed in pagan times. And they tell different stories about the gods, again, quite often rather elusive. And we're very grateful that we have Snorri's account to help us make some sense of them. Excellent. So you mentioned Snorri Sturluson's Prose Edda, of course, being one of the key sources that we have for Norse mythology. And you mentioned the Poetic Edda as well. How do we know about Norse myth apart from the Christian sources, the Prose Edda? Well, we have some references to some of the myths in some other poems, not in the so-called Eddic poems, which we find in the manuscript of the Poetic Edda, but in the complex, courtly poems known as, as scaldic poetry, the kind of poetry that Snorri was writing his introduction about. And there the myths tend to be alluded to in a very passing way, though one or two poems do actually give a more detailed account of a particular adventure. Mostly they're talking about kings, real historical kings, and praising them in mythological terms. So we have some evidence in other scaldic poems. We also have, and this is a more difficult kind of evidence to get to grips with, we have a number of carvings. We have some picture stones from the island of Gotland in the middle of the Baltic Sea. And we have stones from across the British Isles and a few carvings that have been found elsewhere in Scandinavia. And these show scenes which may very well be mythological, but sometimes the evidence isn't all that clear. So, for example, we, we might find a frequent scene that we get on picture stones from Gotland is a woman with a traditional woman's haircut standing at the opening to a hall-like building 
offering a goblet of something to a man who's approaching on the horse. Now, is this a Valkyrie welcoming a hero to uh, Ausgarder? Oh, sorry, to Valhurt, to the, the Hall of the Slain, where heroes go after their deaths. And is this one of Odin's um, Valkyrie maidens welcoming the hero? Or is it just a woman welcoming a human man back home? So those are the kinds of questions that the picture evidence sometimes throws up. Is this really a mythological scene? And there we sometimes need a kind of uh, fingerprint or a particular detail which really anchors the scene very firmly in a story that we know. Or is it just a depiction of everyday life? Very, very interesting. Another question that I will pose to you is once Christianity spread across Scandinavia, certainly marking the end of the Viking Age, uh, did Norse mythology cease to exist? Did what would have been the Vikings, did they just cease to practicing their pagan beliefs? Well, most of our evidence, again, is really good for the higher levels of society. And so we know that, for example, in the case of Iceland, the most of the Icelanders who were present at the parliament or the Althingi, where the conversion was discussed, most of them seem to have converted to Christianity fairly immediately. But there was provision in the law for some pagan practices, uh, making of sacrifice, eating of horse meat, exposing children after birth if you didn't want the child. All of those practices were permitted to continue for a while, though the Christian who gives us this account says that people gave them up of their own accord fairly soon afterward. And so there seems to be a fairly universal pattern with Christian conversion that the upper classes go for it very quickly and they sign up to the, the new religion for a variety of reasons. But what the peasants and the um, people working on the land did is a whole different question. Did they really abandon their ancestral religions quite so quickly? Probably not. And as the case of Snorri writing down the prose Edda and the um, preservation of the poems of the poetic Edda in these 13th century manuscripts shows, people continued to be interested in the past of their own ancestors. And this seems to be why these stories are written down, that people wanted to know what had happened and what their ancestors have believed in. And so there's a kind of historical or an antiquarian interest in this kind of material, which made people preserve it. But we also do have some evidence from contemporary sagas from the 13th century that people still thought in terms of the old gods. So they didn't necessarily worship them. But, for example, there's one nobleman in Iceland who tends to sleep around with various women in the neighbourhood, and they call him Freyr of the Valleys because he's um, like the fertility god Freyr, that he has sex with a whole lot of women. And this is not necessarily a good thing to be, but it shows that that was how they understood a kind of ladies' man, was a, a Freyr. And there's another case where a woman tries to attack one of the local chieftains, and she tries to poke out his eye with a, a dagger and she says, I want to make you look like Odin, the god who of course famously only has one eye because that's who you behave like. And she doesn't manage to, to poke out his eye. But nevertheless, again, it shows that the pagan gods were still alive in people's minds, even if they weren't worshipping them. Very interesting. So you've mentioned quite a few stories there in terms of how we know about Norse mythology apart from the Christian sources. So like the story of the woman trying to stab out the the man's eye. Where do we get those from? Are they from the sagas? 
Yes, they're from a group of sagas known as the Contemporary Sagas, or the Samti the Sagar, and it's accounts of what we might characterise as the 13th century civil war that raged in Iceland, from more or less the beginning of the 13th century up till the um, years 1262 to 63, where Iceland came under the Norwegian crown. And the history of those years was written down by, in fact, some relatives of Snorri Sturluson, and they give fairly up-to-date accounts, maybe with only 10, 20 years between things happening and them actually writing these things down. So those sagas give us a reasonable picture of what life was like in 13th century Iceland. At the same time, of course, people were writing down sagas of a more distant past. And these are what we think of as the classic Icelandic sagas. And they tell the story of what happened in Iceland between the settlement from the year 874 up to probably about 20 years after the version to Christianity. And so they're more like historical novels than actual historical sources. But they do give us some evidence of the worship of some of the pagan gods in Iceland by the the Viking Age settlers there. So do you, in Norse mythology, you obviously spend a lot of time thinking about Norse mythology and uh, writing it and uh, certainly teaching it. I've wondered, do you have a favorite Norse god or a favorite Norse Well, myth? I think my favorite god has to be Odin um, because he's the god of wisdom and the god of, of writing. He is the one who found the runes which enabled men and women to write down the past and to write down knowledge instead of having to rely on passing it on by word of mouth. And he's also a rather tricky individual and he's also the god of poetry. So I think he is my favourite god. And I think the story about him that I like best perhaps is one of the most mysterious ones. In one of the poems, he tells us that he hung himself on the world tree, on the great ash Yggdrasil that rears up in the centre of the world. And he hung himself there for nine days and nine nights as a sacrifice to himself. And when the nine days and nine nights were over, and in that time he was given nothing to eat and he had nothing to drink. He peered downwards, he said, and there he saw the runes. And it seems as if the runes were emerging up from the earth in some way or from the underworld. And he plucks them up and then he makes them available to the gods and to the humans and to the other kinds of being in order to preserve and to encode all the kinds of knowledge that people needed. So you've mentioned Odin hanging himself from uh, the world tree Yggdrasil. He sacrificed himself to himself. Of course, that is very different from the crucifixion of Jesus in the Christian religion. But is there any sort of relation between uh, the sacrifice of Jesus for the world and for Odin's um, hanging of himself? Is there any sort of influence of Christianity in Norse myth or is that sort of unrelated? question. There are some scholars who think that this depiction of Odin sacrificing himself to himself is modelled on the crucifixion because we don't have all that much evidence for it, but we do have it in the poem which I think is probably earlier than the, the conversion of Scandinavia. And if it is distinct from the crucifixion of Christ, then it belongs to a general collection of mythological stories that you get across the mythology of Western Europe, where a god has to die, usually in order to bring the harvest. He dies on a yearly basis. And so you have figures like Osiris in Egyptian mythology or Attis 
um, or Adonis in Greek and Roman mythology, young men who die um, to the sorrow of the mother goddess, whether that's Isis or, or Cybele or Aphrodite, and their their death fertilizes the world in some ways, makes the spring come back again. Now, with Odin, that's rather different because he's clearly not sacrificing himself for fertility reasons. Um, but nevertheless, there may be some kind of fairly deep rooted connection between all these stories. That is very interesting. So my next question to you, you know, as I've been reading Norse mythology, we see the number nine come up a lot. And, you know, the nine worlds and Odin had hung himself from the tree and had eaten nothing for nine days and nine nights. Is there any significance in the number nine that we can see well, in Norse it, mythology? Nine does seem to be used fairly systematically as a number which um, comprises the the totality of the worlds or um, designates a particular perhaps kind of ritual time period. And it seems to contrast with the Christian idea of seven, where we have um, the seven days of the week, we have the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we have the seven deadly sins. So seven is very much a Christian number. And it looks as if nine nine worlds, the, the nine mothers of the god of Heimdattler and the nine days and nights of Odin's sacrifice, as if nine is a corresponding number, number in some kind of pagan philo- philosophical system. Well, you've earlier mentioned your favorite uh, Norse god as being Odin, and I'll tell you that uh, my favorite Norse god is actually ah. um, Njord, the god of the sea and also fertility. And there was a beautiful painting of him done. I can't recall, perhaps it was Emil Doppler, but uh, it's of uh, Njord's desire of the sea as uh, he and his giantess wife Skaldi could not agree upon a place to live. It's a rather sad story in some ways about um, marital discord that simply can't can't be settled through compromise. Now, we have to remember that um, Skaldi didn't really want to marry Njörder in the first place when she came to Ausgarder looking for recompense for the gods killing her father, who was a giant. She was really hoping to marry the beautiful god Baldur. And when the gods offered her as recompense that she could marry one of their number, their condition was that she had to choose her husband by his feet. So all the gods stood behind a sheet and she picked out the one with the whitest and most beautiful feet because she assumed that that must be Baldur. But of course, it turned out to be the feet of Baldur's father, sorry, um, of the father of Freya and Freyr, the sea god Njörder, who obviously has very clean feet because he spends a lot of time in the water. And so Skadi is a little disappointed and she marries him, but she wishes to keep her home in the mountains where the wolves howl and where she can ski because she's the goddess of skiing. But Njörder prefers to live by the sea and Skadi can't bear the noise of the seagull who wakes her in the morning when she's at his palace and Njörder can't bear the howling of the wolves when he's at Skadi's home. And so they agree to separate, sadly. Yes, that is a rather sad story of sort of marital conflict. Nonetheless, uh, Njord has always been uh, my favorite god because I love water. And uh, I've been in, uh, this sounds sort of um, cheesy, but as I looked at that picture, of course, I live in Wisconsin, so there's still snow on the ground. And I saw myself in Njord when he would be looking out across the water, Scotty's home in the mountains, desiring the sea, just like I'm sort of desiring uh, summer in the sun. In oh, the yes. Well, cold, I can well uh, imagine it's pretty cold uh, here. We 
haven't had the spring come to England yet. Yes, I mean, in Wisconsin, you are a long way from New Earth's ocean. That's true. Yes. So my next question to you is, why is it that the Norse gods don't seem to be too particularly interested in the humans and in man, besides Odin often traveling to Midgard in a disguise and sending his ravens to bring him back the news of the events of Midgard. And in the creation account, we have the creation of the first two human beings, the man and woman, Ask and Embla. But uh, why is it that the gods don't seem too particularly interested in the humans? Why the gods are not particularly interested in the humans. But I suppose it raises the question of why humans want gods. And we assume in some ways, from a Christian perspective, that we want to feel that somebody bigger and greater than us cares about us and is interested in our fates. But it looks as if, as far as we can tell, the Vikings had a more instrumental view of their gods, that you were prey to Thor if you were going on a sea voyage, for example, because he's the god of the weather. Or you might pray to Freya for fertility for your fields, or you would pray to Odin for inspiration for composing poetry. But we don't have very much information, and what we do have is a bit late and unreliable, about people sacrificing to the gods. But it does seem as if people built temples to the gods, at least when they came to Iceland. And there was also the great temple at Uppsala in Sweden. And there, there was animal sacrifice. So people must have thought that the gods would do things for them if they sacrificed horses or dogs or even men, as we're told, in in connection with the great temple at Uppsala. But it does seem to be the case that Odin is very systematically connected with ideas about kingship. And so Odin goes into the human world to check on the behavior of kings and to make sure that they're ruling properly and effectively. And he's also tremendously interested in human heroes because he's gathering an army of dead human heroes in his great hall of Valhurt, Valhalla, as it's known in English, because those heroes are going to fight on the side of the gods when Ragnarok comes. And so he's interested both in promoting the careers of heroes, turning up and telling them which horse they should select as their particular steed or giving them access to strong and fine swords. But he also turns up at the end of their lives on the battlefield and takes them off with him to Valhalla. And we do have some evidence from some poetic sources that the the kings who die in battle and are taken off to Valhalla, even though they're welcomed by other heroes and the Valkyries hurry to bring them brimming goblets of mead, the kings aren't necessarily that pleased to be dead and in Valhalla when they could be still alive and enjoying the uh, advantages of being the king of Norway. So we do have um, also the story of Thor as well, who acquires two human servants called Thialvi and Ruskva. And he gets these because he stays at a human house when he's on his way to, to visit giant land. And he has two goats who pull his chariot. And it's possible each night to kill the goats and eat their meat. And then the next day, the goats will come back to life again and be reconstituted. But this depends very much on not cracking over the goats to get at the tasty marrow inside. And although he's been told not to, little Fjallvi does crack open the bone of one of the goats because he's, I think, quite excited to get some meat. And the next day, the goat walks with a limp. And so Thor is rather angry. And Fjallvi's father, Eich, has to hand over his two children as Thor's servant. 
wouldn't. But they do. We do have some stories about Thialvi accompanying Thor on various adventures. So there seems to be a good relationship between those two. Another question that I've had is many people view the Vikings as being quite warlike and uh, sort of a very warlike people. When in reality, we understand that many, in fact, most of the Vikings were agricultural farmers, just as uh, most, you know, average people in Europe at the time. And they were also traders, but there was a certain element of raiding that the Vikings carried out. And I don't know, it's a sort of misrepresentation to view them solely as warlike, but would it be fair or unfair to view the Norse gods as being all um, warlike? like the gods of war are really odin and to some some extent thor it seems at least people seem to have carried thor amulets with them into battle and odin is invoked as the the god of of battle in poetry um, but it's not very clear that the other gods are particularly interested in war. They're more interested in um, living a, a pleasant aristocratic life in the hall, in eating, drinking, um, solving disputes, doing the business of rulership, really. And so it's also important, though, to remember that hanging over in some ways the, the framework of Norse mythology is the knowledge that there will be the final battle, the battle that is the centerpiece of Ragnarok in the end. And the whole cosmos is moving towards destruction and the great face-off between the monstrous children of Loki, Fenris the wolf, the Midgard serpent, and their allies, the frost and fire giants who will advance and attack the gods on that final day. And so perhaps it is true to say that there's at least anticipation of that battle uh, threaded through the, the fabric of Norse mythology. Well, thank you very much, Professor Caroline Larrington, for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to discuss Norse mythology with you. Well, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you, Noah, and to talk to everybody who listens to the podcast too. If you enjoyed this episode of The History of Vikings, then do me a favor and write me a review. I would love to hear your thoughts on the show and welcome any feedback or criticism that you might have. Join us right here again next time on The History of Vikings. (laughs) 